0: You are listening to Holy Heresy, a podcast that looks for the questions found at the intersection of spirituality, justice, and the arts. Holy Heresy is brought to you by the First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. Good morning and welcome to First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. Your presence here, or in sacred virtual space, is a gift and enriches the beautiful tapestry of our community. Here we are all welcome, wherever we are on the journey, and free to be who we are, to love who we love, and to explore our faith and beliefs at our own pace. Today is a special day as we continue our fall series in evolving God, in evolving world, in evolving purpose, as Reverend Laura shares a chancel conversation with Reverend Stan Mitchell. Stan, we are so grateful for your presence here and for all that you will share with us today.
1: Michael gave you a short introduction to our guest today, Reverend Stan Mitchell. Stan is from Nashville, and he and I are new friends. We met because I started following him on Facebook and really came to know him. I know, we hate Facebook, but we love it, don't we? I really came to see his heart and to understand who he was. So just a few weeks ago, he sent me a text and said that he would be in Southern California, and he wanted to come by, first of all, to see the organ and then to meet me. (laughs) But we had a lovely conversation that day, and out of that grew my desire to have him here with you all. So this morning as we start, we're going to use the formula. Many of you know I love the Gogon painting that asks the questions, where do you come from, who are you, and where are you going? So we're going to use those three pieces. And why don't you start with where you come from. But do tell them, since it's baseball city sadness today, who you are named after and why.
2: Well, in the family that I come from, baseball is a second religion. When we, from our vernacular, when we backslide, it becomes first, which happens ah. frequently. But we we do appreciate. I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Was named after the great Stan Musial. My dad was the poor kid that lived off the boot hill of Missouri, lay beside the radio listening to Harry Carey and Stan Musial was his idol. We do. I do have a a, a fine appreciation for the minor league system. Los Angeles Dodgers that you follow. Um, (laughs) They're a beloved part of our life, but anyway, I I hail. That leads into where I come from. I I know my Queen's English betrays me, but I do come from the south, northeast Arkansas, a long way. We we said, this is not LA language, but we grew up so far out in the country we had to go toward town to hunt. That's how far we were (laughs) out. My father was one of 15 children. People often ask Roman Catholic. I say, no, Northeast Arkansas. <laughs> um, very deeply, deeply Christian, greatly evangelical, and highly fundamentalist from as far to the right theologically as you could possibly come from. I don't know how far we would want to delve into that, but that is my background. Five generations from a Pentecostal tradition. Um, and with all of the caricatures and stereotypes um, attending great-great-grandfather actually was the first pioneering preacher actually handled snakes those caricature stories are real but that's the world that I come from grew up in that was four generations deep in a small rural Pentecostal denomination and from there I think I would throw it back to you. My my grandfather always said a good sermon is one with a good beginning and a good ending and those two as close together as you can possibly get them. So you ask me what time it is and like a classic preacher, I will tell you how to build a watch. So back to you.
1: So we share that growing up in a very conservative religious background, but when he told me his, I thought Baptists were liberal. You know, it just made us seem so much better. When
2: we studied comparative world religion, we were studying the Baptists, the Methodists, and the Disciples of Christ. Christ, Those were really exotic religions for us.
1: So you started out preaching, you told me, at 16.
2: So in that world, young kid preachers with ardor and... Any young male that yes. had any zeal and any level of precociousness was going to be conscripted in the ministry so I uh, education was not strongly advised in that world and I began preaching at sixteen. I think my senior year in high school I preached two hundred and thirty nights of revivals that year oh. and I, I say that it it could elicit laughter but it could also elicit tears. there is a pathology in in creating those kind of religious kid stars. It's not too different than what you see in proximity here. A lot of horsepower with no chassis, no braking, no suspension to sustain that kind of thing. But that is the world I came from. By the time I was 27, I had left that denomination, which leaving my denomination was like leaving Ur of the Chaldees. You get up, you get out, and you never go back even for a family reunion. There was When I left my denomination, there was uh, literally a a prayer slash funeral meeting for me because I had left the truth. But I I left that truth because I I had found books. Mm. And uh, a Methodist neighbor lady, another one of those comparative world religions, a (laughs) Methodist neighbor lady unwittingly gave me a Max Licato book. She didn't know in my discipline That was referred to, Max Licato, mind you, it was referred to as external literature. And we were, young ministers were not allowed to read those things because it might lead you astray. And for whatever reason, I slid that book, I accepted her gift, slid it under my bed, and after about a year, pulled it out and daringly read, and I was scandalized. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said, the mind once exposed to a better idea can never shrink to its original size. Anybody ever experienced that? And I was scandalized by the fact that this person, who was not of the truth, right, Mm -hmm. could write so movingly about Jesus. And I learned something very quickly beyond that scandal. I learned that evangelical ministers wrote for a milieu, but they often thought beyond what they were writing and I very quickly I don't know how I figured this out but I figured out if you wanted to really know what a Christian author thought don't read what she writes read who she reads and I found my way to the bibliography and the best way that I can say it is by myself in a closet of conservative theology I read my way and bibliography my way upstream and Lakato led to Swindoll and Swindoll led to Yancey, and by the time you get to Yancey, you find Beekner and Nowen and Lee and by the time you get to Beekner, you find Union Theological and Tillich and Niebuhr. And I was horrified and yet vivified. And so that was a bit of my journey out.
1: And one that we share, because very much the same thing happened to me, and it's kind of like, once you take the genie out of the box, then you've got to keep going. And not everyone does that. Some people take it out, read those books, become so frightened that they almost rubber band back in fear. So I would tell you that the people that are in this church are not those people that go back. They're the people that started evolving, and they've kept going. So second question, who are you at this point?
2: So in in that process, by the time I made my way to uh, my my mid-30s, I... I decided to, in the stem of the buckle of the Bible belt, instead of doing what would have been normal, and I think even to some degree appropriate, and just picking either the UMC or the UCC or the DOC to take my wares to, I decided to do something a bit different and create a church. The group of friends, about 12 of us, began gathering with an evangelical-style the trappings of that world to provide some comfort. We essentially created a church that became a deconstruction zone for evangelicals that were reading these books. They were reading McLaren, they were reading Marcus Borg, they were reading John Shelby Spong, and yet going back to their conservative church. So we decided to, allah, and careful with appropriation of course, but with regards to Harriet Tubman, we decided to create a place called Grace Point that would be a bit of an underground railroad for those trying to leave fear-based religion. I have a very strong sense that fear-based Christianity, like fear-based religion, has to go the way of appendixes and wisdom teeth. As a species, we have to evolve beyond this bifurcated afterlife and this horrific idea of an angry God that has to be appeased, the idea of inherent separation from God. I, I personally believe that Christianity has within it the seeds of its own reformation. I think this group that I'm a part of is really a fourth or fifth iteration of a progressive attempt. The mainline started this long ago. But I, I think Christianity is trying to evolve. I think it has the seeds of progressivism in it. But I feel so strongly that fear-based religion is such a dastardly thing that if Christianity cannot evolve beyond it then Christianity needs to die a paschal death so whether we are doing churches like this are doing reform work within the body trying to help us think better thoughts and draw out the meaning of Christ that was always there whether we're doing that or we're doing a palliative hospice care for something that we love dearly that needs to die with some sense of decency and even that idea of Christianity dying is not horrifying to me, because except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. And I don't think it would have to be a terminal death, maybe a Paschal death. And so that's the world that I live in. And that's Grace Point, the church that I began with a group of friends 20 years ago.
1: And we are very definitely, we could agree in that first part, not the latter at this point. We're not ready for a funeral. We're trying to...
2: Well, I'm not either. I'm doing (laughs) my best. But either way, the grace of God will meet us there. It will.
1: It will. So you came out of very rigid views. You read a great deal. You started a church with people who were deconstructing. And there was one major piece that you had to deal with.
2: Right. So in 2003, when we started Grace Point, a group. Quickly, it was a gadfly in the community. Evangelical ministers and churches looked at us with a high level of dubiety. Because at Grace Point, if you ask me as one of the leaders there, you know, how does Grace Point feel about substitutionary penal atonement or Roe versus Wade or the end times or whatever the subject might be or immigration, my response was very different than the evangelical response. I would always say, I don't know, you'll have to ask them. Because we didn't have that articulated ten statement you know, statement of faith, we were a veritable deconstruction zone. And by that, uh, kind of the founding premise was Ricoeur's idea, Jean-Paul Ricourt, the French existentialist, that really we all move through three phases of life. It's an overgeneralization, but Piaget tried to say it. Erickson said it, Fowler said it in stages of faith. Brueggemann said it with orientation, disorientation, reorientation. But Ricoeur said, we all fire into life and we enter into a pre-critical phase where we learn this is a thumb and this is a finger and we differentiate schematically orange and yellow and colors and sounds. But the critical phase or the pre-critical phase is generally followed by a critical phase and the critical phase is followed by a post-critical phase. Record beautifully called that first naivete, sophistication, and second naivete. Second naivete is that lovely place that it generally takes a half of life to get to, where you deconstruct the Santa Clauses and fairy tales and literalisms, the myth, but you enter into what Richard Rohr calls a desert, a desert of criticism that leaves you bereft of hope and leaves you angry, and your Christianity ends up being simply the things that you don't believe. There's no satisfaction there when you're losing loved ones and battling intensive care units and bankruptcies. Grace Point was a place where we fairly laid a structure for people to be able to move out of the pre-critical phase of hyper-literalism, a wooden-headed literalism, enter into a critical phase where they could read Spong and Borg, but then to hear a call from the desert of criticism to become again as a child, not childish, but childlike, and to come again ideas of resurrection and incarnation, not in ways less than we once believed, but deeply more. And we did that for 10 years, and it wasn't popular amongst the clergy, but the church grew to 2,500 to 3,000 members. It was a lovely 10 years. Our people were moving from deconstruction into new construction. They were able to settle peacefully in their disorientation and allow that riptide of deconstruction to take them wherever it wanted and we provided that safe place but then 2012 2012 our our apple cart was upset the experiment that we had tried ecclesially there in the buckle of the bible belt in that kind of evangelical setting was upset by one of our members if you pastor in nashville you will have celebrities just like in la there is a large country music scene there and we had quite a few celebrities, and one of our members was being interviewed by the BBC. Um, It's not a secret, it was Carrie Underwood. Carrie and her husband were longtime members of our church, and she was being interviewed in the BBC. I think she was doing a concert there, and the interviewer asked her in 2012 about what had happened to the Dixie Chicks and their statement that caused them so much trouble and really almost the loss of their career in total. The interviewer asked her, he said, you seem like a progressively minded person, but you're a part of a, of a music genre that has a very conservative clientele. Right now in America, America is being roiled in the religious political community by the same, same sex marriage amendment. How do you feel about that? Well, ten years into the life of our church, Carrie said to the interviewer, I attend a church, I'm deeply Christian, and I attend a church that is, this term makes me cringe now, but it is gay friendly. And I know personally my pastor is a dear friend, and I know that he is fully inclusive. Well, a third of our congregation understood the code in which I spoke and they said, of course. Was there a question? A third of our congregation were nail-biting, white-knuckling deconstructors who said, oh my. And a third of the church, deeply evangelical people that somehow evidently I had tricked into coming because I was trying to convert them. It was amazing to me. I look back now and I think. As liberal as my theology had gotten, I still had that evangelical presumptuous ethos of thinking I had a better idea and I could trick people, build wells for them, and then sell them the gospel after ingratiating them. You might imagine it created a furor in the church. Westboro Baptist decided to come picket us that week. So there was no avoiding it. The third of our church that were deeply evangelical that were scandalized by this statement were knocking down the door of the church trying to find me and saying, you believe what? And you might also know that 30% of our congregation was about 70% of the finances. Those evangelicals tithe. Us liberals need to do a little better with our giving. Yes, they do. But that thrust us into a place. I knew the experiment was up because now there were three groups of people in our church and that middle group of deconstructing people shared a border with each of the other two groups. But those two extraneous groups were on the board, they were on the staff, they were singing in choirs, they were sharing space and life groups, they were living intimate lives in a church setting together and they were a million miles apart theologically. And I went to our elder's and said, It is true. I believe same gender, romantic, sexual, intimate love is as celebrated by God as its heterosexual counterpart. I do not believe. I do not believe same gender love. I do not believe a transgender journey. I do not believe those are matters of sin. Not only do I not believe they're matters of sin, I think they're celebrated by God. And I cannot continue. The deconstruction zone had to end because now I had a pastoral ethic and responsibility to Mary and Jody to marry them and to dedicate and baptize their children and to ordain that young young woman coming from Vanderbilt Divinity who was lesbian but loved our church. And I went to the church and we decided that we would enter a period of discernment on the matter of LGBTQ inclusion. We immediately lost five to seven hundred people just on the grounds of revisiting the subject. Over the next three years, we grew the church down to a loss of a couple of thousand members. We lost a lot of people, lost a lot of finances, a two million dollar budget quickly reversed, but we found our souls. And Grace Point in 2014 In December 2014, I married Michael and Josh. Michael was our first minister of music in 2004. The deconstruction zone so worked for him that one day we went to lunch. And this 45-year-old man that grew up in the same denomination I, I did, that was married with two kids who had never told his secret, tried to tell me something. I still remember that day in 2004 when I said, are you trying to tell me you're gay? And he laid across the table and wept. To my heartbreak, our church was not ready at that point to take that journey. Michael went through a painful divorce, an unfair sanction, even in relation. He was an incredible father. Lost his children for years. Peacefully left our church fell in love with Josh, moved to L.A. Nine years later, in December 2014, they were married in Nashville, and I was able to perform that ceremony. It was a shot heard around the world. Two weeks later, I stood up at Grace Point, and we made a full statement of inclusion, and it was a lovely, devastating, beautiful time. And looking back, words like, Friendly, affirming, inclusive, open, all of the words we put on our signs, just like you guys do. I think all of those are fine words, but they can be seen as self-congratulatory. The reality is we became repentant. We did not. LGBTQ inclusion is not an effort of the church that can be described as wonderful. We have not done something awesome. We have simply stopped doing something awful. We do not deserve a Nobel Peace Prize. For simply ending the abuse and celebrating God's children. So, that was, I think, how to build a watch in response to your last question.
1: So, you can probably figure out why I invited him, right? Mm. But you know, we're just scratching the surface in many ways. So he's agreed to come back. And I think we all will welcome that and hope that it's very soon. And if you do not follow Stan on Facebook, you need to. Because he shares the stories of young people and their parents who are in these deeply conservative, fundamental places. He calls them and talks to them. And I think he said to me, your job these days is?
2: I serve a diaspora. I'm now pastor emeritus at Grace Point. That's kind of a monarchial mm-hmm. position, or as my dad would say, a malarchial position, but <laughs> a monarchial position where there's lots of glory but no responsibility. It's lovely, you ought to try it sometime. Not, not yet. <laughs> but uh, I, I now serve a diaspora of queer people who are in little towns in Delaware and South Carolina and Idaho that do not have a first congregational, and they cannot take their child who has brokenheartedly ideated about suicide and maybe even attempted, they can't take them back to the Assembly of God Baptist little church where their life has almost been destroyed and they've been told they were less than. I realized I was a cisgender, heterosexual, white, male, all of the privileges. I am not a voice for a voiceless, that's a terribly patronizing thing to say. I realized that my privilege, my ill-gotten gain of privilege as this person, is that I have amplification a pulpit, a platform, and a microphone, and unwittingly Grace Point, or rather Facebook, became the place where I turned my microphone over and I quit abstracting about esoteric doctrinal ideas and I just allowed that page to tell the story of these children's heartbreak and all that their family go through. People read those stories and every day, two to 12 people send me a private message and say, help. And I immediately send them back my phone number and say, text me within 24 hours. We set up Zoom calls and FaceTimes and I travel all over the country doing work for these families. I do the part of pastoring that I always love now, and that is pastoral care, the relieving of suffering, and it's particularly that group of people. And it blends well with my whole love for deconstruction because no one is deconstructing and disoriented more at the intersection of gender, sexuality, and faith than these people who have their own undeserved self-loathing based on doctrine. So that's what I get to do now. You can follow me on Facebook. And I make posts about my mom and dementia, and that's a lovely part. And somehow God has graciously used that journey I take with mom to take away the sulfurous breath, the yellow eyes, and the talons that people might think I have as a reprobate apostate. And they find that I'm actually a son and a Christian, and I love their children. So that's what I do. Follow me.
1: Say thank you with me. Love you.
0: Thank you. That was beautiful. If you enjoyed what you heard, you can join us for service each Sunday morning in person or on YouTube, or consider supporting First Church by making a tax-deductible gift at fccla.org slash give.